Hello, my name is Ben Verhulst, and I am here with Pastor Chris. We are talking today about we believe in the church. We're talking about what it means to be the church, uh, what it means to belong to the church, uh, and what the church is. So from from there, I'm going to let Chris take it away and talk about what what does this, why did we title it, We Believe in the Church? What does that mean? These podcasts are, you know, we're doing for the sake of church membership. And if you're listening to these and you presumably you're interested in becoming a member of the church, but uh, becoming a member of the church presumes that you understand what it means to be the church or what a church is. Um, and so every understanding of membership in the church presumes that we kind of presupposes an understanding of the church. Um, but in my experience as a pastor, <clears throat> uh, people come into the church and they have lots of different uh, understandings of the church that sometimes are not in line with uh, <laughs> the actual, our church or the scriptures or, you know, are shaped more by their experiences, good or bad. Um, and so it's just important for us to speak about the church in a kind of a general way. Um, and so for this episode, I think it's important for us to spend some time talking about the nature of the church uh, and how this understanding shapes our our notion of belonging and membership. And so in this episode, what we're going to be doing is um, really tackling this question, well, what is the church and what is the role of the church in the Christian life? In the end, we'll consider very briefly uh, this question of, well, you know, then what are the marks of a true church? Um, but I think it's important to start kind of in a, just recognizing how uh, conflicted um, and perhaps disenchanted people are around the church. Um, you know, most people um, in our culture have a pretty negative view of the church. So when we were talking about doing these episodes, one of the things that I think we identified was the biggest thing that people, uh, or the biggest challenge that people have when they come to our church is typically not our doctrines about salvation or our understanding of the gospel, but actually our understanding of the church. Yeah, I mean, and um, it, it might not make a lot of sense, but we have a very high view of the church, uh, which which means that we we see it as a really essential part of the Christian life, and we take it really seriously. There's there's an old um, quote from one of the church fathers, Cyprian, um, that says, you can't have God as your father without the church as your mother, which which nicely, uh, you know, captures, um, I think, a truth about the role of the church in the Christian life that has been just assumed uh, really up until the last couple hundred years or a hundred years or so. Um, where even Calvin, John Calvin will say, you know, there's no salvation outside of the church. And the Belgic Confession, Article 27, affirms this. And, and what it means is um, that, you know, that's a, that's a big statement to unpack. Uh, but what it means is simply that God has ordained the church um, and the ministries of the church for the salvation of the world, right? Like the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the nurture and life of, of the Christian and the world. And, and uh, so the church, I think a lot of people in our culture relate to the church 
as a kind of supplement to their spiritual life. So if you can find a church, you know, you kind of get that supplement, right? Like Christian community or some, some good teaching or, you know, helps organize with some mission. But I think a lot of people don't relate to the church in America, especially within evangelical culture as necessary to their spiritual lives. And, and, and one of our convictions as a church, as a, you know, a reformed Catholic church is the necessity of the church. And obviously that, that's a concept and, you know, that we would have to, you know, clarify some different things. Uh, but that's a really important conviction of ours. So when you say God ordains the church um, to be these things, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, that the God gave the church, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's like, this is how I want, you know, the kingdom of God to go forth. This is how the means by which I want people to come to salvation. I mean, I mean, just like in the same way that the family is the means by which, you know, people grow up and become adults and mature and live, right? In the same way God gives the church. Now, I'm, I, I want to step back for a moment and reflect just a little bit about, you know, um, the deep suspicion and disenchantment we have towards the church and our culture. And, and I, um, you know, I myself have really struggled in the past with the church. And, um, you know, I think we all, one of the things I've realized as a pastor in the past 10 years is how much baggage uh, people come into the church with, church baggage, right? Like in the similar way that, you know, um, you know, when you get into a relationship with a person, a romantic relationship, and perhaps you've, you're older and you've been in other relationships and you often you're bringing the baggage um, of those old relationships into the new relationship, right? And sometimes if you don't process that, it really impacts the way you relate in the new relationship. So it's really important, um, and I do, I call it a <laughs> kind of a church therapy in a way, um, to just help people kind of work through bad experiences in the past or, or maybe just really bad thinking about the church. And so... Yeah, I think that's a really important part of being the church is recognizing how we all are really influenced, all of us, whether we really have a positive view of the church or not, by our culture. And it's generally pretty negative view towards institutions in the church. So how is that anti-institutional cultural understanding, um, how do we see that playing out in the church today? Well, I mean, I you see it everywhere, but I think... Um, you know, there's this phenomenon now, I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, uh, of deconstruction, right? Uh, there's a lot of different, um, within evangelicalism in particular, conversation and talk about people deconstructing their faith. And usually what that means um, is that people are kind of going back and looking at, usually this is people who grew up in the church were, or in a deeply Christianized parts of America are kind of going back and looking at beliefs they took for granted and sort of deconstructing, like thinking them through and kind of saying, what do I believe or not believe? And, and oftentimes the first casualty of deconstruction is the local church, right? <laughs> Where people kind of come through that deconstruction process and realize like, you know, I don't really need the church in my life. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, from just purely demographic trends in the past 20 plus years, church membership in America has been in decline. And that's a pretty steady uh, thing. And that's especially the case with younger generations. Um, and so there's all these kind of experiences, I think, that 
there's a kind of perfect storm of cultural events and forces that I think make belonging and, and membership like harder and harder. Um, you know, I could spend a whole episode talking about these, but let me just name a couple of them. Um, well, one is just, you know, what we call secularization, uh, which is the, uh, the idea that um, American culture as a whole, especially in urban centers, um, is becoming less and less religious. Um, um, that it's in some cases becoming even somewhat hostile, but also just less familiar <laughs> uh, with Christian understanding of the world and assumptions about what it means to be a human being. And, and this, this again, just creates this new environment to be the church. So even if maybe people uh, 20 years ago, they went to church, um, but in the past 20 years, maybe that the space that church has occupied in their lives has just shrunk until it's maybe just Sunday mornings, and they don't see any influence from that Sunday morning service to the rest of their lives. And then they start going why am I even going on Sunday mornings? Right. And that's a perfect example, right? I mean, where the church uh, slowly loses its sort of relevance in people's lives. And they're like, well, I don't need the church. I can, you know, pray on my own or read my Bible on my own. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's just the, there's less and less of a, a kind of the reality of God that, that, that God exists, that, you know, there's a kind of demand upon us is less real for people. And so it's easier to disconnect from church. I mean, you also have this very strong anti-institutionalism. You know, American culture has always been anti-institutional at a certain level. Um, but there's a really profound anti-institutionalism that's gripped us in the past uh, 10 years where we just fundamentally distrust institutions and power and people with power that are, you know, and institutions represent power. So whether it's Congress or the presidency or the Supreme Court, to uh, healthcare and uh, the CDC or, uh, you know, whatever regulative agency, but the church for sure is part of that, right? We, um, people are suspicious towards the church and for good reason in some ways, because, you know, like many other institutions, it's either been dysfunctional uh, or it's, it's been downright failing from a moral perspective, right? Um, but, but, you know, one other, one other piece of that difficulty of being the church today, I think forces that influence all of us is just that, you know, as people in American culture, like we are, we're incredibly uh, individualistic, right? Like we, um, we have this view that honestly, like we don't need other people, <laughs> right? Like we, you know, we, we have a very individualistic view of our faith and our life and um, we don't see um, belonging and community quite as necessary. Now, I think some things have changed on that regard with respect to the pandemic, but there's a lot of other forces like uh, our views of freedom, like a kind of a libertarian view of freedom is that the more commitments and demands that are made of me, the less free I am, which is again, not a biblical understanding of freedom, but um, a very secular one. And so that, that makes commitment to the church. People keep commitment to the church at bay or, or they tend to think about that individualism turns into a kind of a consumer orientation to church. And so like they're, we get attracted to church in terms of like, what can I get out of it? Right. Rather than like, what can I give or what is God doing? Yeah. I think that's probably the thing I hear the most is 
like, what do I get out of going to church on Sunday? What do I get out of being a member that I can't do it by myself? Right, right. It's like belonging to Costco or something, right? Like, well, what do I, you know, I pay this, for, you know, I'm going to get discount prices or I'm going to get the goods I need. And, you know, I think that that that's an image. Like, again, we live in this kind of consumer age where we're oriented towards institutions, even marriage, sacred institutions like marriage in the church, in terms of like, what do I get from it? You know, what does it give me? And I think, you know, answering that question, I mean, you you almost have to have question the whole framework. You're like, well, it's the wrong question, right? So uh, one of the things, uh, you know, so we, the title of the podcast today is, you know, we believe in the church. Um, and uh, I like I like that title because uh, one of the things we do almost every Sunday in worship is we we confess our faith. We stand, we confess our faith um, from the Apostles' Creed. And one of those phrases in the third article is that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And um, it's really a kind of um, odd thing that we're doing if you think about what it means to uh, confess your belief in the church. Now, I think we can get the reasons why I would confess belief and faith in that God created the universe, that, uh, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin, <laughs> that he was raised from the dead, that, um, you know, the resurrection of the dead and the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, right? Like those are, those are invisible realities. Um, they're things that are not like t tangible or they're things that haven't happened yet. If there's one thing in the creed that it wouldn't seem like we would need to profess belief in, it would be this, that I believe in the church. It would seem like if you said, I don't believe in the church, we would kind of say, it's okay, we're, we're still here. It doesn't right. really matter if you believe in us or not. Right, right. I mean, because the church is visible, right? I mean, the church is the one thing that nobody can deny exists in the world, right? It's a visible, empirical reality. There's churches everywhere um, that gather and worship and are organized. And so it does seem like an, an odd thing to, to, to say, I don't, you know, I believe in the church, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, like the idea that I don't believe in the church, but, you know, I, I've heard many people over the years tell me, well, I just don't believe in the church. Now, when I hear them say that now it's, it gets exactly at what it means to believe in the church, because when they say that they're not denying the physical reality of the church that churches exist. What they're denying is that um, the church is part of God's plan or necessary for them. They're basically saying that it doesn't have any authority or it need not be, right? And it's actually a statement of faith in the opposite direction, right? So um, when we say, I believe in the church, I mean, what we're saying is, you know, I don't, it's not like I believe that City Reformed Church exists at, you know, 1661 Fire, North Firewall Avenue. What it's saying is that I believe that God has given the church um, as his instrument uh, for salvation and for kingdom work in the world, that he's given the church for the sake of my, my spiritual welfare and good and my, you know, faith and worship for all the reasons, right? And that, uh, you know, and it truly becomes, I mean, honestly, the hardest thing I think for many of us to profess and it with a sincere heart is that we believe in the church, especially when, you know, we have really bad experiences in the church, whether it's trauma or abuse in the church, which some people do experience or, 
just like the disappointment of the church. Like it's just so disappointing and dysfunctional to go on and, and to continue to believe that God has called the church and is using the church. I mean, that, that requires an act of faith, right? That I think is really important. So how, how do we live out I believe in the church? What does it look like for me to actually believe in the church? Not just to say it, not just to confess it, but to, to live that way. So I like to think about, I like this word, um, you know, I used the word earlier about our negative views of the church as a form of disenchantment. You know, you think about enchantment, disenchantment. Um, I think what we need today is a kind of re-enchantment of the church. And by enchantment, I don't mean like fairy tales or magical thinking about the church to say it's something that it isn't. Um, but it is, uh, when I think enchantment, I think um, imagination. Imag an imagination for what God has said the church is to be in the world and what and how God relates to the church. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think it's helpful to reflect on scripture's own language for how it speaks about the church. And, um, but, but I want to just pause for a minute and just talk about this word church, right? So what does the word church mean? I'm asking you, Ben, you're a seminarian. <laughs> What does the word church mean in the in English or in in the Greek in the, Greek. In, the in the New Testament context? Yeah, I mean it's the it's the body of believers. It's the saints. Um it's the gathered people of God. Um but it's not it's not just the people. Um it's the uh Ephesians talks about it as the gift of God, right? God gives gives gifts to his people um and that's that's the officers of the church the office bearers of the church um are the the gift of god to his people um so so it's not the church in the new testament isn't um it's a people but it's more than a people it's also an institution well one of the things you said there that i think is important is that it's you know you're referencing ephesians and how god gives but um, so the church is an institution, right? In the sense that, you know, we have, you know, at City Reformed Church, we have, uh, you know, we have an office, we have a building, we have regular practices, we have personnel, you know, like all the stuff that makes up an institution, regular practices. Um, but it's still like, it's sort of a hybrid, right? That's the hard thing about the church because it is a human institution. There's a human face. God has given it to us. And yet the church is God's institution, right? It's, it's not something we made up and it's actually not something that we are ultimately in control. We are stewards of the, of the church, but just in the same way that God gives, um, you know, leaders and pastors and office bearers to the church, I mean, the church itself is a creation of God. And that word ecclesia in the New Testament is actually, um, you know, the called out ones, right? The saints, the called out ones, it's the elect. And uh, I think that's a really important word to keep in mind when you think about the core foundational nature of the church in its essence is the called out ones, the elect 
those that God has called out of darkness into light to be his children. Um, and again, we refer you back to the podcast previous to this one to understand what we mean by election. It doesn't mean that we are the morally, you know, upright and superior ones to everyone else. If anything, it means the opposite of that. Um, objects of God's mercy and grace in the world. But I think that language of election is really important for understanding um, the institution of the church because what it says is that the church is God's creation and that at the end of the day, the church exists not because uh, we want it to exist or because the world wants it to exist or sees that it's useful, uh, but because God wants it to exist. And, and again, I, I always try to remind people especially when things are going bad and things like, looks like things are going bad in the life of the church. We're like, Oh, the church is going, you know, like is irrelevant or nobody's going to church or, you know, it's like a new moral failure or something. And, and we're like, can the church survive? And I'm like, yeah, it's going to survive because God wants it to survive. It's, it's not us. It's not up to us. It's not by the will of man, but, but by the will of God. And I always, I always love the quote from GK Chesterton when he talks in his book, Orthodoxy, but, you know, people talk about, you know, the church is going to the dogs, you know, which is this idea that it goes to the dogs and it gets consumed and eaten. And then he says, you know, but it's the dogs who die. Right. <laughs> and I think that's the case. You know, you see the church at different points in history that seems like how can it possibly survive because of moral failure or corruption or because of persecution? And yet God's in his will wills it to survive. So I think that's that, that kind of a big picture theological observation about the nature of the church. But I want to drill down into some metaphors for the church or, uh, you know, images of the church. And you mentioned a couple of them, like people of God, body of Christ. Um, I have a book, um, an old book by a New Testament scholar called Image of the Church in the New Testament. And in that book, he, he looks at, um, he kind of catalogs all the different uh, metaphors or images in the New Testament for the nature of the church. And he actually lists about 94 of them. Um, now, not all of them are really primary ones, um, but there's a lot of different imagery and, and metaphors for understanding what the nature of the church is. And so um, in, in this uh, section, I think it's important for us to reflect. I want to reflect on five of them. And um, here I'm really, I think it's important for us to say, well, why do I need the church in my life? And how should the church function in my life? So I want to talk about five images of the church from the New Testament and, and try to apply them to, to our you know, practical life as believers. So, so the first one, so let me listen for you first. So it's the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, temple, people of God, and household of faith. So there's, again, there's a lot more, but those are some really central ones that get repeated again and again. And I, I want to start with perhaps the one that's the most well-known, um, uh, which is this idea that the church is the body of Christ. And um, again, thinking in terms of re-enchantment, like how do we reimagine the church in the way that God thinks about the church? And um, the language that scripture uses, and this is found primarily in, in Paul, when he talks about the church as the body of Christ. And so Christ is the head and we are the body. So the head, though, is in heaven. And so that imagery of head has to do with authority, that he's the authority of the church. 
um, but also the the word also means source right like it's from his body from which we have have life um, but what's really important for paul is that um, the body of christ has a sense of being the presence of christ in the world right the embodied presence of christ in the world so um I think this is so important to understand because, you know, in our post-pandemic world, where a lot of our social lives for a period of time was shifted into a virtual reality, where we're connecting only over Zoom or electronic mediums, there is this, this great sense of disembodiment. Um, <laughs> not being able, you know, in the shutdown mode, not being able to connect for embodied worship um, was really, you know, difficult, you know, and that language of body is so important because I think what the way that Christ becomes real to us in the world is through his church. Right. I think that's, that's just a really important thing because I, I often talk to people and they're like, Hey, you know, why isn't God, um, saving my marriage? Or why isn't God um, doing something about this war? Um, and and I often say, like, well, have you looked at what the church is doing, right? I mean, have have you actually, you know, if your marriage is struggling, have you, have you involved the church? Have you connected with your church and gotten counsel and prayer from your church? Or, uh, you know, you look at this war, have you, have you looked at uh, the churches that, that our church has uh, been working with, um, they're actually going into war zones and they're bringing aid. Um, so that, I mean, I think we often kind of think of God's work in the world as abstracted from the church. But what you're saying here is, is no, the church is God's work in the world. That's right. And, and for sure, God's work in the world, um, always is bigger than the visible church, than what we can see. So we're not saying that only the institutional church is what God is doing in the world. We're not saying that. But um, but that the way that Jesus really becomes present to us in like flesh and blood is through the embodied community of worship. And so that language of body, I think, is a really important one. And And again, the trend of our kind of digital culture and world is to go remote or to go virtual and you know we still have a streaming in our church and and um i do maintain it um in part because there are people who for different reasons can't come to church and we write and they still want to stay connected but i i just want to say and i say this every time to time and i hopefully i'm not offending people too much but virtual church is not real church it's a substitute it's 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 a it's a quick fix but it's not a long-term solution to what it means to be, or answer to what it means to be the church. I mean, to be the church is to be an embodied relationships and embodied worship. And so that language of the body of Christ, I think is really important. The way that this plays out, I think, in our services um, is, is we actually have this greeting time, right? Where not just, you know, you don't say from the pulpit, hey, uh, God welcomes you. I mean, you do say that. But there's also this moment where we all turn to each other and I greet the person next to me and say, you know, peace be with you. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I want to see you today. And 
that's not just me saying that, right? It's Christ saying that to this person through me. And so that's, you know, this embodied life that we live together. Um, Christ is present in that and through through our life together. Yeah. And, and that, that sort of, you know, all these images of the church kind of overlap. And that, what you said there, um, I think connects us with the next one I want to talk about, which is the temple. Um, Paul and Peter will often talk about the church as a temple. And a temple in the ancient world was a, was a kind of physical place where the presence of God was, in a sense, concentrated, right? So in the ancient world, um, people thought very specific, like geographically about God's presence. And so like you would go to Jerusalem where the temple was because God's presence was more concentrated there. And, and it, um, it's not that they didn't think God could be present other places, but in a ritual way, in a, in, in a kind of a cultic way, um, the temple was the place if you really wanted to come to experience the personal presence of God. And uh, the language that's often used, or the language that Peter and, and, and the Apostle Paul use, is that, you know, the church, you are a temple, right? And that language of the indwelling of the Spirit is key, right? So Peter will say, you know, you're like, basically, literally, he says, like a house of the Holy Spirit like living stones being built into a holy temple. Um, and I think, again, like where I think this is an important image to have in mind is, is that we, again, in our culture, we've kind of domesticated the presence of God. Um, and and what, that mean, what I mean by that is like we're saying, well, you know, God's everywhere. He's on my presence. So I can commune on God with God on the golf course or in, you know, fishing or in my case, surfing. As much as I could, you know, um, on worshiping in some way. Why? Why do I need to go to worship? And um, the answer is, is that well, you know, it's true that God is present in all those places, and it is possible for God to be uh, present to us. But um, He is present in a special way when we gather as the body of Christ and worship through his word, through the sacraments, through the gathered community, in prayer. When you think of Jesus' promise to his disciples, when two or more are gathered, I will be with you, right? And, and it's just this, the, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a sense in which the presence of God is, is promised in a real way. Um, I like to use this example of thinking about the way we can be present in different ways to one another. So like when we ride on an airplane, like, so I'm not the type of guy on an airplane that just wants to strike up conversation with people sitting next to me, you know, and it's almost like the more physically close you are, the more you want to keep your, your distance, right? So I can have a person like literally inches from me um, and they're present to me, but that's not a communicative presence, right? It's, I don't know them. And, you know, I do talk to people on the plane, so I'm not saying I'm completely recluse, but it's not um just standing next to them isn't necessarily them communicating themselves to me, them showing themselves to me. There's a different kind of presence. And that's what we're talking about, the temple presence of God, that God is especially present in the body, right? Like the body of Christ, Jesus shows himself. Um, and so again, that's a hard one for us to grapple with. Um, but again, as part of the importance of why go to church? Well, God is especially present um, to us in church. 
Now, again, that's not to say God can't be present to us in other places like he was to, you know, Elijah in the wilderness or Jesus, um, but it's, it's, it's different. It's also, I mean, I think picking up on that analogy, um, your airplane analogy, I, I think like God talks to us too in church, right? Like that's, it's, it's not just, um, being present even it's actually communicating um and communicating in a in a deep way um i mean that's what what sermons are right we believe that god actually speaks to us um personally in in sermons um and not just you know in a generic way um i mean i think when we talk about sermons, it can be uh, a little bit awkward, especially for those of us who are actually doing the preaching, because we're saying, hey, uh, God is actually speaking to you through my words. But what we're really trying to communicate is not so much that it's it's my words that are important, but that, that God actually wants to hear or to be with you and to to say something to you in particular, um, and it's not just—it's—it's uh, not, it's not as though scripture is insufficient. It's that um, scripture becomes personal in in a particular way when it's when it's preached in a sermon. And especially if you if you're a member of a church, you belong, and you have a pastor who knows you or knows the congregation, has your struggles and. And, you know, uh, and sins in mind <laughs> and is able to sort of craft a sermon, listening to the spirit that kind of addresses you in your context. And so, again, that's that's part of it. And I, and I also say, too, I mean, like, you know, we live in this age and there's upsides and downsides where we can listen to sermons all day long. You know, you can listen to sermons from our church, you know, anywhere in the world. Um, but there there is a difference, I think, um, between listening to a sermon in worship, uh, when you're there and you're present and then by yourself. And, um, you know, uh, you can benefit and be nurtured and the spirit can speak to you in similar ways, but there is something more impactful. I think just by the act of sitting in person and listening. I know for me, like I, I remember sermons in which I'm present, um, where often I listen to sermons and I, uh, mine are doing different things and I forget, you know, um, but, but, I think the other, you know, something you said I wanted to pick up, Ben, which brings us to the next next image, which relates to us knowing that God God loves us and he cares for us. And the the image of the bride of Christ is is a really lovely image. And it's it actually originates with Jesus, because he talks about himself as the bridegroom. And the assumption is is that um, we're his bride. And Paul picks up on this imagery, and it then gets picked up in the book of Revelation as well, um, at the end of the of the Bible or of that book. Which um, to say that the church is the bride of Christ means that the church is a special object of God's love and affection, right? And if you think about the relationship between bridegroom and bride, or husband and wife, you know, the bride is is a kind of yeah, you know, God's devotion, right? And, you know, again, God loves the church. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's the scandal of the whole Bible, that God 
you know, prefigured in the, the nation of Israel. Here you have this dirty bride, you, know, you have an unfaithful spouse and bride in Israel. And, it, and we do the same as the church. And yet God persists in loving us and loving the church. And one of the things that I think is really hard for us to know, like when you, when you're not a part of the, the body in a regular way, when you're not systematically connected to the body and belonging, you know, you can really struggle to know that God loves you. And um, there's something about God telling, you know, like when I hear from a brother or a sister, you know, that Jesus loves me, like that's powerful, right? And so I think that that aspect of the bride is is a really, really important one. Um, and, and, you know, the imagery of bride kind of leads to to um, to the next next one, which, you know, with the imagery of the bride, you often have this idea of, you know, the pure right robe, which has to do with the holiness of the bride as being, you know, pure and set apart for God, a faithful one, right? And the reality is, as we know, the church is not. <laughs> our, our, our wedding garments are quite dirty. Um, we lack holiness. Um, and so a part of, a big part of being the church in the New Testament has to do with that we were, we're a moral community, right? Set apart and holy for the Lord. And, and that, that idea of being the people of God, that's the next image I want us to reflect on for a minute. Um, to be the church is to be the people of God. And, and the word people there is ethnos. Um, which, you know, you think ethnicity, right? It, it evokes this imagery of being um, being a race in a sense. And, and there is a way that um, the New Testament talks about the people of God as a distinct spiritual ethnicity in the world, drawn from all kinds of tribes and nations um, that is kind of distinct and set apart from the world. You said, uh, you know, that we're not a perfect people. And I think that's a, um, there's a little bit of nuance to that, right? Um, we certainly uh, are not, not a group that successfully, uh, you know, it, it is morally superior to anyone else. Yeah, yeah. But we are a group of people who is striving towards a particular goal, right? And encouraging each other towards that goal um, in, in ways that you don't see um, in the, in the rest of our culture, right? I mean, uh, you know, the, the Lions Club doesn't have a, uh, marriage counseling, um, or, or, uh, doesn't encourage you to, to give up sinful habits. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting, uh, we, we do have, you know, our blemishes and certainly, uh, fail over and over, but at the same time, um, there aren't there aren't a mo there aren't moral communities in our culture in the same way that uh, that the church is. The family, you know, the family is, is really the one of the only one you know moral communities. Um, but yeah, the church is 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 definitely um, like a distinct moral community and. When and I think of First Peter, he uses this language of a nation, ethnicity, or ethnos a lot. And one of the big themes that he's picking up on from the Old Testament um, is this theme of holiness. You no, know, be holy as I am holy. And 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 the distinctness of the holiness of the people of Israel was like 
was part of their ethnicity in a sense. Their practice so something like circumcision, which at the time was the kind of symbolic for them being set apart from the nations and their practices was meant that, you know, they're set apart for God. And so in the New Testament, of course, circumcision is no longer the requirement, but, but the moral law doesn't go away. Being set apart in our sexual practices and set apart in, you know, basically what's enumerated in the commandments um, is still what the people of God are supposed to be, which is to be different morally in the world um, than the rest of the world. And so um, that's that's a really big part of being the church, um, being a moral community. And, you know, I haven't talked much about the mission of the church in this. Um, each of these different categories that I've mentioned are images like body of Christ, bride of Christ, temple. They all have a missional dimension to them that we could talk about. In other words, an aspect of the church reaching out to the world and engaging the world. Um but the, the people of God one on this point of being a kind of moral community set apart that part of what should make the church attractive to the world, it's part of its witness, is that it is set apart. And that our holiness is not something that should be alienating to people, although it will be on depending on an issue, but attractive because this is what it means to be a true human being, right? <laughs> this is what it means to treat orphans and widows the right way. You know, this is what it means to affirm life. This is what it means to be a family. Uh, those are things, you know, that should reflect who God is in the world. And it's important. So how does our, uh, our tradition and our church, how do, how do we embody um, these, these things? What do, what do we aspire to be as a church, like um, in concrete ways? Uh, and this, this, that's a great question, which brings us to the last, the last image here, which is household. Um, again, you find this word household in First um, Peter and in Timothy, uh, that the church is a household of faith. And I really like that word household. Um, when I do marriage counseling, one of the things I, I've started talking to couples about is that, okay, part of your job as a marriage couple is to set up a household. And to set up a household isn't simply to like buy a house and all that. It includes those things, right? Because um, you need a place to live. Um, but to set up a household is, is it presumes one that, you know, you have a family and that's more than just the two of you, but not just the two. I mean, but even as the two of you, you're, you're like, okay, this is, this is who we are. This is how we're relating to the world. There's a kind of moral dimension to having a household. Um, and you want it to be a place of peace and nurture and all these different things. But it also evokes that idea of family. And this is one of the things that I, I, I think is really important that I try to hit on a lot here is that to be a household is to be a family. Like we don't often think of the church as a family, um, but it is. It's a spiritual family. It's a bunch of interconnected families with one another. And to be a family is to rub shoulders and um, you know, uh, the family is God's design for how we learn what it means to love and to be loved in the world. And uh, Jesus in the church in particular, to be part of the household of faith is learning what it means to, to love Jesus and to be loved by Jesus, right? It's both and. Um, you need it and it gets messy. And, you know, um, you know, we in a household, you know, we have conflict and you know, um, disagreement and sometimes we don't get along and there's, there's, and also part of being a household is like, it's really 
mundane, right? Like it's just regular business. Like, you know, it's like when you've been married, you know, for a long time or you have kids and you're just like, it's routine, right? You do this, you do this, you know, you make dinner, I got to get the kids to school or, and being the church, there's a lot of that. And I think it's important because a lot of times we come to church and we're looking for some kind of experience. I'm looking for something exciting, something dynamic, always new, always fresh, you know, and, you know, if you, if you were to take the image of family household as your image to think about the church, like we don't think about our families that way. It, it just can't, it's not sustainable. That's not to say that as families, you don't have you know great vacations or special moments or special experiences, but the day-to-day life of a family is very ordinary, very routine, very mundane. But that's where the beauty is, I think, and that's where the real growth and transformation happens in our lives. When we insert ourselves into the family of faith and we just be, <laughs> and we just exist and we just participate. And it's that experience that is just transformative. In some ways, I think um, we have to lower our expectations. Like we, we're talking about this high view of church, like church is really important and everything. But like when we're talking about family, we don't, it, it, it's also really important, but I don't hang out with, uh, you know, I, I don't go over to my parents' house and think about, uh, you know, what am I getting out of this, right? Or like, uh, what's what's the program? Um, I, w- I was just at a friend's house, a, a member of our church, and another member of our church called, and I didn't even think to ask uh, this person. I just said, yeah, come on over. Um, because, like, this is what family is, right? It, it's, um, it, in any other context, that would be really rude. But it's just, that's kind of the messiness of of being in a family. Yeah. It's life together, right? I mean, life together in and around the person of Jesus. I mean, that's what it means to be the church um, in a kind of lived way, right? And you need institutions like <laughs> to to sustain and support the church, right? You, um, But there's so much more to the church than just a building or uh, staff people or pastors or even its ritual life. Um, there's all these other organic aspects of the church. All right. I think uh, that wraps up our discussion of the the theological and ideological foundations of the church. Um, we are going to talk more about what it looks like uh, in practice. We're going to talk about what are the marks of the true church. Uh, we're going to talk about um, how do we live out in our worship and in our liturgy, uh, what it looks like. But uh, for now, uh, we're going to leave it here. So thank you very much.